Again, it is great to be with you. Thank you again for this opportunity and, uh, and for your hospitality and enjoy your singing very much too. Let's talk about the older brother syndrome. Um, but I want to start this way. One of my favorite debates to get into is uh, over what is the great American novel? What is the great American novel? Um, one of my favorite candidates uh, and perhaps my favorite uh, American novel of all uh, is uh, actually from my own home state, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Uh, it's a true classic. It's brilliantly written, uh, and it makes an even more brilliant point about racism in Southern society at the time. It gives us one of the great heroes in all of American literature uh, in Atticus Finch. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a great candidate uh, for um, the great American novel. Um, another candidate that gets put forward a lot of times, of course, is The Great Gatsby. Uh, the Great Gatsby is a kind of extended parable about uh, the bankruptcy of the American dream. It's set in the 1920s after uh, Americans have accumulated incredible wealth, uh, but we have lost the things that matter most. And what F. Scott Fitzgerald seems to be doing and the book is raising the question whether or not we can go back. And I think he actually subtly hints uh, in the book that going back to the church is our only hope. He also subtly hints that uh, God is watching and God judges. And so ultimately we have to return to him if we're going to um, recover what matters most in life. Otherwise, the secularized American dream is going to run us over like a speeding car. Uh, so The Great Gatsby is really a profound critique of what American society had become by the 1920s with all our status and our wealth. Uh, it's a book that shows us that getting what we want is never enough. It's not going to really satisfy us. There's got to be something else, something that, uh, that we've lost, something that's missing. And because of this, again, it's, it's a very deep critique of American society and of our, uh, our hypocrisy, uh, you could say, among other things. Uh, another candidate that's often put forward for the great American novel uh, is Huck Finn by Mark Twain. This is uh, one of my favorite books, certainly. It's one of the funniest books um, written by an American author. Mark Twain was certainly uh, one of the wittiest uh, authors America has ever produced. And what you see in Huck Finn, uh, you, you see in Huck Finn, you see uh, marks of Twain's sharp, sarcastic, ironic, but also very humorous edge that, that, is, that, is, that is there in his writing. Um, Huck Finn is also a very profound critique of American culture, a diagnosis of various problems that Twain identifies in American society. In Twain's view, as you read the story, this becomes very clear, even though he says, you know, anybody trying to find a moral in this book will be shot. That's actually him telling you, you better find a moral in this. Um, civilized Americans are like modern-day Pharisees. Uh, they're blind to their own hypocrisy. Meanwhile, Jim and Huck, uh, the unwashed, unclean uh, sinners that they are, so to speak, they're like tax collectors. And ironically, they become uh, sources of wisdom and morality even in spite of themselves. And so really the whole book is a stunning expose of American racism and hypocrisy, much of which, of course, grows right out of the church. And you can see this with the way he mocks Sunday school and, and, and so forth. Um, another candidate for the great American uh, novel is Moby Dick uh, by Herman Melville, which is certainly one of the most morally and theologically complex novels ever written. Uh, 
Uh, it is a work of intertextual brilliance, pulling in everything from the Bible to Shakespeare and all kinds of other sources. It is a work with uh, incredibly rich and yet wickedly twisted symbolism. Uh, and Melville's book also subtly pokes fun at America's re religiosity, uh, including ways in which our theologians have reduced knowledge of God to uh, a kind of textbook knowledge rather than a real experiential knowledge of God. Uh, Melville, after he wrote the book, he, he, he wrote a letter to his friend Nathaniel Hawthorne about Moby Dick, and he said, quote, I have written a wicked book, but feel as spotless as a lamb. And it is indeed a very wicked book. It is full of religious pluralism and skepticism. And again, Melville gives us a very clever but very twisted use of religious symbols to promote his pluralistic vision that all religions are really the same under the skin. And he also seems to indicate that while uh, God, like Moby Dick, can't be tamed, he also can't be trusted. This is what I find interesting. You take all these candidates, and I, there are others certainly you could throw up, but I think these are probably the main ones. What each one of these novels has in common is a commitment to critiquing American culture, to uncovering the self-righteousness of the American church especially. Uh, they, they basically uh, expose and, and diagnose our fundamental older brother tendencies. Each of these authors, as best I can tell, is some kind of, I would say, basically apostate Christian. Uh, Harper Lee apparently was a big fan of C.S. Lewis, but apparently also not much of a churchgoer. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald was a lapsed Roman Catholic. Mark Twain, a lapsed Presbyterian. Herman Nelville, a lapsed Dutch Reformed. Um, all of them, and, and perhaps Lee would be the one exception to this, but all of them seem to have this bitterness towards the self-righteous, hypocritical, older brotherishness that they saw in the American church. In other words, if these great writers are all right in their diagnosis, this is a huge problem and a deep characteristic in the American church. Uh, and, and so these books each aim at exposing the hypocrisy of American society, largely there in the American church. And again, if all these writers have identified this as a chief problem in American society, then it's pretty safe to say that this has been an issue in the American church. Now, what I also find interesting is that all these books, as brilliant as they are, you know, each one of these books could, could be read as almost like a, a long parable that you might find in the Gospel of Luke, really, the way that they expose this older brotherishness. They all are great at diagnosing the problem. But none of them come anywhere close to presenting a solution. Um, perhaps Melville is most succinct in this. There is a scene in Moby Dick where he, he gives this great line through the character uh, Ishmael. And honestly, again, this, this line sounds like it could have come straight out of Luke's gospel. Uh, the character Ishmael says, Heaven have mercy on Presbyterian and pagan alike, for we are all dreadfully cracked in the head and in need of mending. If you read that book, you probably remember that line, and that is exactly right. Presbyterian and pagan alike are all in the same boat, so to speak. We're all cracked in the head, or to put it in terms of Luke 15, older brothers and younger brothers both need mending. The problem is younger brothers are much quicker to admit that about themselves than older brothers 
are. Part of your older brotherishness is keeping up this appearance that you don't need to be mended. The only way for any of us to be mended is through the goodness and the grace of God. The grace of God the Father shown to us through Christ his Son. In terms of Luke's gospel, we could say that Pharisees and tax collectors are both cracked in the head and in need of mending. And Jesus has come to do the mending. But once mended, we point others to the one who has healed us. We point others to the one who has mended us that they might be mended as well. Again, if we've been shown grace, we must be gracious and we must show the way to grace for others. This is always the test for any church. Do we welcome sinners? How do we do welcoming sinners in? Uh, and I don't just mean in the abstract, we'd all say that we want to do that, but I mean practically, do we actually make sinners feel welcome? Do we actually show them that we have a gracious Savior who forgives? Jesus spent time with sinners. Uh, he sought out uh, sinners, and he sought, to, he sought them out that he might bring them in. Uh, a, a really interesting thing to do is to talk to people who have left the church altogether. I don't just mean you know, move from one church to another Orthodox church, but I mean who have just left the church altogether, uh, who, who have left the Christian faith altogether. Uh, talk to people who have left the church and ask them why. Or you can read accounts. There, there are actually whole book studies that have been uh, done on this, or, or, or uh, there are all kinds of articles out there that interview Un, you know, people who have left the church. And, and granted, what they have to say is not always fair. People are sinners, and um, Romans 1 shows us that people will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People uh, hate God. People have no excuse for their departure from the faith in the church. I'm not trying to give them an excuse uh, or, or in some way lessen their blame for that. They are blameworthy for their rejection of the Christian faith and the people of God. But I think it can be instructive to us to ask what occasioned their departure. And again, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but time and time again, if you, if you talk to people or if you read these articles or the books that are about this kind of thing, what you will find is very often their problem was not so much with Jesus as it was with the church. Their problem was not with Christ, but with Christians. And a big part of their problem is they did not find the church to be a gracious place. The church did not seem to be a place that could help people after they had had a serious moral lapse. If anything, the church just heaped on the shame. It was not a place where people who were really struggling could be honest and open about their struggles because, hey, you're a Christian. You're not supposed to struggle. You're supposed to have it all together. The church was not a place that wanted to deal with people's problems. The church was a place where when people messed up, it seemed like they could no longer find friendship and community and acceptance. Because they had failed, they were treated like failures. Now, again, I'm not saying this is, this is true of your church. I don't know your church. I'm not saying that it's, that it's true of my church, even though I'd say that certainly my church could do better in many ways uh, at this. But just the church in general, this is a question we have to ask. Do we really love sinners? Or do we perhaps subtly in various ways insinuate that no, we really don't want you around. Um, and, and then we begin to make excuses for that. We begin to make up reasons why perhaps um, 
people who have these struggles or failings in their lives don't want to be around us or why they wouldn't want to be a part of our church. Or we make excuses why we don't want to welcome them. We might say, oh, we don't want them to influence our children or we don't want this or we don't want that. And we begin to, to give reasons why um, we, we, we act the way that we do and carry out uh, ministry the way that we do. I think Tim Keller, Tim Keller is a, a pastor in uh, New York City in Manhattan and uh, been there for a number of years and um, I wouldn't endorse everything Keller has to say on every topic, but on this particular topic I think he has something interesting and useful to say. This is what he says, and, and this again comes out of his own work on the uh, parable of the prodigal son, but listen to what he says, and I think this is really a profound challenge uh, to the church said, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. So who was drawn to Jesus? It was the irreligious who came to Jesus, the, the open sinners, the notorious sinners who came to Jesus, and the people who were the Bible thumpers, like the Pharisees, were offended by Jesus. So he says, this is the effect Jesus had on people. But then Keller says, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches are not appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. Okay. I find Keller's conclusion there inarguable. I think he is... Um, I think about it this way. This is another way to approach it. What kind of person must Jesus have been to attract who he, he attracted and to repel who he repelled? Or we can ask the question this way, what kind of community must we be in order to do the same? To attract the same kinds of people Jesus attracted and repel the same kinds of people that Jesus repelled. We'd have to be a Jesus-like community, so we need to know what Jesus was like. Jesus seemed far less concerned with the sins of obvious sinners than he was with the unrighteousness of those who presumed to be righteous themselves, to those who were self-righteous. We've got to keep coming back to this question. Why do younger brothers flock to Jesus in the Gospels but avoid the church today? Again, in my experience, uh, you know, having served in, in, I guess, three different churches now in over 20 years, traditional churches, like mine and presumably all, like yours, traditional churches that are committed, rightly committed, to biblical standards of truth and morality, often have a very hard time welcoming in sinners, finding a place for sinners in the community. The ethos or culture of our churches can make it difficult. Even if we don't intend for it to be difficult, we can end up being institutionally inhospitable. Again, we may not intend to be, and we may say we don't want to be, but inadvertently, we end up being institutionally and communally inhospitable to sinners. When new Christians come into the church, they inevitably track in dirt. They bring, uh, all of, well, they bring a lot of their non-Christian habits with them, and they have very few Christian habits in place uh, when they're just beginning uh, the Christian life. They don't reach Christian maturity instantaneously. And oftentimes, in our older brotherishness, we have a problem with that. We're impatient with it. 
When prodigals come home, they bring all kinds of baggage with them, all kinds of problems. It may be various addictions. Again, it may be bad habits. It may be language we don't like. Uh, they're ignorant. They're immature. Again, older brothers often have a problem with this. They're impatient with it. They don't quite know what to do with it. Now, don't misunderstand me. We can never be indifferent to sin. We never become indifferent to sin. We should share in the Father's welcoming and patient and gracious love towards the sinner while not becoming indifferent to the sin. But I want to put it this way. The church should be a safe place for sinners, not because we're okay with sin, but because we know what to do with sin. We know it, how, how it can be forgiven, and we know how it can be killed. The church must be a safe place for sinners. Not for sin. We can't be a safe place for sin. But we must be a safe place for sinners. Now, I want to give you a couple caveats here. And I, I, I haven't always done this when I've taught on this passage, and I've realized that I need to. One thing to understand in our culture, because our culture is so hypersensitive and so hypersensitive about um, people who are judgmental in any way, and because people are so quick to claim themselves as victim. And in our culture, if you can claim to be a victim, you are right, no matter what. I mean, we've all seen that, that if you can somehow uh, claim to be a victim, then anything you say or do goes, pretty much. That's how it is in the, in the culture at large. So we need to be real careful here, okay? Just because you make someone feel judged does not mean that you're an older brother, just because you make somebody feel judged does not mean you've been self-righteous or that you've wrongly judged others. There is a kind of emotional blackmail uh, in which people can claim to be offended or to feel judged, even though all that's happened is they have been told the truth about their sin. So we cannot allow that kind of blackmail to take place in the church. Loving people and making people feel loved are two different things. And people's feelings do not trump objective reality. Just because someone does not feel loved does not always mean you have failed to love them. There is a difference between being loved and feeling loved. Okay, a child who disobeys and a child who gets a spanking by a loving parent may not feel loved right in the moment. But he is being loved. The correction and the discipline are forms of love in his life. His parent is telling him the truth about his sin and is doing something about it to train him as he should. So he may not feel loved right in that moment, but he is being loved. So while the church should be a place that welcomes younger brothers back home and to the table, we must not allow emotional blackmail to take place in our churches. This is actually how John Piper defines emotional blackmail. He says emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. A person may love well and the beloved still feel hurt and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. And when somebody says that, there's no defense. How can you, what, what comeback can there possibly be? Uh, when somebody says they feel a certain way, that's it. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing you can do uh, about that at that point. The hurt person in that case has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does, does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. The emotional, this emotional device is a great evil. 
And I've seen that take place. And we can't allow that to happen. There are times where people are going to feel unloved by us even though we have loved them and even though we have spoken the truth to them in love. So we must avoid this kind of false guilt that comes when people, uh, because their feelings have been hurt, uh, accuse us or blame us of not being loving. Okay, where we've really seen this happen, where I've seen this happen in my own ministry, uh, is with practicing homosexuals. Okay? Certainly the church has to make a place for repentant homosexuals, say people who still struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay? Um, but here's the thing. You can seek to love and serve people in the homosexual community. You can try to show them kindness in every way. But so long as you insist that same-sex sexual activity is wrong, you are going to be accused of being unloving, of being judgmental, basically of being an older brother. And what I'm saying is, everything I say in critique of the older brother, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. Okay? We cannot allow ourselves to be emotionally blackmailed into a kind of false guilt where we confess failures for things we haven't actually done wrong. But I would guess there's still plenty of things we have done wrong uh, that we need to uh, repent of and, and, and be made aware of. I just actually came across an article uh, the other day about why so many in the millennial generation are leaving the church. And I don't know if the um, survey numbers are accurate or not, but there's a high percentage of millennial people who, when they're surveyed, um, are not just indifferent to the church, but actually see the church as a force uh, for evil more than good in our society. They're very anti-church. Um, and and, and um, I've seen these surveys where a lot of people are interviewed, and so some interesting quotations come out. This is, how, this is just how one person put it. One person said, Church always felt exclusive and cliquish, and I've never been good at that game, so I stopped playing. Okay, this person's experience of the church is that the church is kind of a cliquish kind of place and you either fit in or you don't. And if you don't, well, you know, you've got to kind of play a game to fit in, make yourself into something you're not. And this person got tired of playing that game and simply left. Now, again, I'm not, we don't, I don't know the story there, don't know the back uh, drop to that, that may, you know, maybe that there was sin on the part of the church, maybe not. But this was this person's impression, and I've heard this same kind of thing um, regularly. And, and I've heard it enough that it has led me to, to want to think things through in this kind of way. So this is what I would put before you. Look at your church, everything about your church, as best you can through the eyes of a typical non-Christian. What does your church look like if you put on those non-Christian glasses? What is the Sunday morning experience like? If you look at it through the eyes of a non-Christian, what are other aspects of your community life as a church like if you look at it all through the eyes of an unbeliever? Or even get more specific, pretend that you are uh, a single mother uh, or pretend that you are uh, a Democrat. Okay? What kind of things are you going to notice when you come in? What kind of things are going to stand out to you? Now, in raising those questions and saying you need to look at it this way, I am not saying that you need to change everything. I'm not saying you need to change anything to suit their tastes or their interests or their preferences or their beliefs. Not at all. That's not the way we do church. We're governed by the scripture, not by the opinions of non-Christians. What I am saying is that we need to sensitize ourselves to these kinds of things so that we can better and more effectively reach them with the gospel. 
See, what I'm saying is we need to find ways to maximize our hospitality and our welcome and our friendliness precisely to those people who would be most inclined to stay away or most likely to be easily offended if they were to walk through the door. Think about the people who are not here, who are not part of your community, and what it would be like for them if they visited. And then think about what things you might be able to do to make that visit go better for them, that they might feel loved and welcomed in ways that you might otherwise overlook. What does it mean to welcome sinners without welcoming sin? How can we be hard on sin and gracious to sinners at the same time? I think the father in this parable shows us. The father agreed with the older son that what the younger son had done was wrong. There's no question about that. He disagreed with the older son in terms of what that meant for the younger son and how he should be treated. The older son thought that because the younger son had messed up, he could never be restored. He could not be freely welcomed. That's where they parted ways. Again, being right and being self-righteous are two different things. Being holy and being holier than thou are two different things. They may look a lot alike. They may seem to have a lot in common, but they are completely different. Uh, one problem I think we have because of our older brother syndrome is um, we have made people think that being a Christian is precisely being an older brother type. See, when most people think of what is a Christian, you know, think in terms of the parable of the prodigal son, most people out there in our culture, if you were to ask them what's a Christian like, you would get a description not of the father, certainly not of the prodigal son, but not of the father either. You would get a description of the older brother. For most people in our culture, they think that's what a Christian is. Not a father type, but an older brother type. A moralistic, self-righteous, smug, priggish kind of person. Now, the fastest way to become a grumpy older brother type Christian is to focus solely on what's wrong with everyone else. And our culture really invites us to do this, especially the culture at large. There's been such a complete loss of civility and basic respect in our culture. Um, you, you, know, you look at what ha what's happened in terms of political discourse, but in other aspects of our culture, there is this tendency to focus on what everyone else does wrong and to ignore what you yourself do wrong. I think this is a big reason why people in our culture think that a Christian just is an older brother. Christians are just people who are against this and against that, and this is what they find wrong with that, and this is what they find wrong with this. And that's what a Christian is, this, this bundle of sort of self-righteous moral convictions. And probably on top of all of that, they don't live out what they really say they believe, and so they're probably hypocrites too. That is the view that our culture has of a Christian. And the reason people don't want to become Christians in our culture is because they don't want to become older brothers. There is nothing attractive about the older brother. That's why I can't help but, you know, a, a wry smile comes across my face every time I read the parable and he talks about wanting to have a party with his friends. And I keep thinking, you probably just don't have any friends. <laughs> uh, who would want to be friends with a guy like this? I mean, nobody does. There's nothing about this that is attractive. But we are blind to our own older brotherishness. What we need to recognize about the state of our culture right now is that, and this is so important to see, prodigals think we hate them. Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you hate non-Christians? You just hate them? With, you, know, you hate their guts? No, of course not. Of course you don't. But they think you do. They think you hate them. Non-Christians think we hate their guts. Now, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to prove them wrong? 
What Jesus wants to do is create a community that combines biblical moral standards with a biblical practice of grace and mercy. And again, the father is the model. The father is the model of this. The father never compromises his high moral standards. The father never sins himself. But he does lovingly welcome the sinner. To be a part of this kind of missional program that we see the father carrying out in this story, to be a part of this kind of missional ministry, this kind of missional program, we've got to be willing for God to stretch us in ways that may be very uncomfortable for us and even costly. See, here's the thing. God does not give us the church of our dreams. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, anybody read his book, Life Together? Such a good book. And one thing he talks about is we can fall in love with the church of our dreams and end up despising the flesh and blood Christians that God has actually brought into our fellowship, into our congregation. I would say, for, you know, for most of us, when we think of the, the, you know, what's your dream church, what, what's the church of your dreams, it actually ends up being a bunch of people just like you. People who are really easy to get along with, who share the same convictions and the same practices. And see, the thing is, that is an abstraction. We fall in love with an abstraction, and we ignore or even practically despise the people God has actually called into our community. God does not give us the church of our dreams. And that's for our good. God sometimes will bring people into the church who are hard for us to deal with. Sometimes we get the church of our nightmares. <laughs> I'm a pastor, I can say that. Sometimes you get people in your church who are very difficult to deal with. Not just because they're different from you, but they're just difficult. Okay? Now, is that person irritating or am I easily irritated? Open question, right? Okay? But, but that's the kind of thing we have to wrestle with. Uh, Karl Barth was once asked, will I see those I love in heaven again? And Karl Barth said, not just those you love. <laughs> and that's true. Uh, in fact, there may be a lot of people in heaven you don't really like that much. You don't like them now. I suppose then we'll all like and love each other perfectly. Uh, but that's just how it is. God's kingdom is a big place, and, and God wants to bring all kinds of people into his kingdom. And a lot of those people are going to be hard for us to love. God's kingdom includes a lot of surprises, and God likes it that way. Uh, he might drag into his kingdom some people that you least expect to be there and least want to be there. We have to love the church that is, not the church we wish existed. Again, that's Bonhoeffer's Life Together. I encourage you to read that book if you haven't already. We have to be careful how we push our distinctives in a congregation. This is something that, you know, I'm, I'm a CRC pastor. You're a CRC church. We, we deal with these kind of things. Uh, our churches are unique from the wider, you know, we belong to, you could say, the wider evangelical culture in all kinds of ways, but we also really stand out from that culture. We have some things about us that are really, really distinctive. We need to be careful how we view and practice and promote those distinctives in our congregations, or else the boundaries of our fellowship will become much narrower than the boundaries of God's fellowship. The church cannot be built around those distinctives, which really have to do with secondary doctrines. The church must be anchored to the gospel and built around the gospel and built on the gospel and organized around the gospel. Any other center is going to give way sooner or later. If your church is built on anything else, 
than the gospel, whatever that center is, whatever that foundation is, it's not going to be strong enough to hold you up. It's not going to build the kind of community God wants you to build. What's going to happen is you're actually going to end up creating a clique or a club or a tribe rather than a church. So often this happens in church planting. We don't like any of the churches around where we are, and so we go plant a church that's, going to, again, going to be the church of our dreams. And what I want to say is that's not church planting, that's club planting. That's tribe planting. That's clique planting. It's not really church planting. Now, we need church planting. There's no city in America that is sufficiently church, so we need church planting. But when we plant churches, we need to make sure that these are churches that are built squarely upon the foundation of the gospel itself and not anything else. Only the gospel is strong and rich enough to support the long-term growth of the church in terms of both maturing the people who are there and bringing new kinds of people in. Only the gospel can do that. If you build your church on a secondary doctrine, on secondary distinctives, even really good ones, that's not going to happen. Even if they're true and good and beautiful in their own way, they can't be the foundation, they can't be the center, they can't be the anchor. And I've met with church planting groups, and they say, well, you know, um, the, the way that they will describe themselves, I can tell within five minutes whether or not the church has got any kind of chance of making it. Because what do they lead with? What do they focus on? And if it's anything other than the gospel and the mission that flows out of the gospel, I, I know right then that church is not going to make it. We have to start with the gospel, not with our particular distinctives, and we've got to build from there. Hold on to those distinctives. I'm, I'm not saying give them up, and I'm not saying they don't matter. They do. They're important for the maturation and the mission of the church, too. But they're not the center. They're not the anchor. They don't ground everything. And see, when, when, when we recognize that, when we distinguish what the gospel is, the core of the Christian faith from these distinctives, then... We're free to be generous and merciful even towards those other Christians who disagree, who may not be as mature as we are, who may not have studied the Scripture with the same kind of depth. We also learn to not be perfectionists about the church. Again, don't be a dreamer, be a doer. Be continually asking people. You know, this, is a, this is a great uh, question for us to ask ourselves in our churches. When people walk through the door, and, 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 and you know, they may be marginally churched, they may be unchurched altogether, but ask, how can I make your life better? I know that God wants you to flourish. I know God wants you to experience his shalom, his peace. How can I make your life better? How can I help you to flourish in the way God wants you to flourish? Or more broadly, you can ask the question, how can we make our city better? How can we improve our city economically, socially, and yes, spiritually? How can we be better servants to our city? How can we make the city, you know, you're, so you're in the city of Cary, how can you make the city of Cary feel loved by Jesus? Those are the kinds of questions we need to be asking in our churches. What do we do in our churches when a younger brother uh, wanders into our church, a younger brother type? Again, go back to what Keller said. If our churches can only reach straight-laced, very conservative people, we are going to be in big trouble. Because for one thing, there are fewer and fewer of those people around. We have to be able to meet people where they are and then get them by God's grace to where they need to be. But you can't help them make that transition unless you meet them where they are right now. And that requires stretching. That requires 
you going out, you searching, you doing the work, you doing the sacrificing. We don't want to just create niche churches, you know, churches that fill a particular niche, churches that are designed to appeal only to a very small slice of people, people who fit into a certain subculture, uh, people with very specific uh, convictions or, or, or beliefs about things uh, that, that are then so uh, rigid that nobody else could ever fit into the church community. We need to offer a wider welcome. The, the, the wideness of our welcome needs to be as wide as the mercy of God. Again, a lot of churches end up being built on something other than the gospel, some distinctive other than the gospel. We have to avoid that. We have to practice hospitality. Isn't it a beautiful thing that Luke 15 ends with a party? It ends with a feast. It ends with making merry, with eating and drinking. Uh, Christians love to eat and drink together, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, we need to practice feasting, but we need to do it. Here's the thing. So often when we think of hospitality, Dwayne and I were talking about this the other day, and he said, you know, so often when we think of hospitality, we think of dinner parties, getting together with your friends and, and having fun with your friends. And that's true, but, you know, even the pagans do that. Even the pagans have their friends into their homes and share their tables. There's another dimension, another layer to the kind of hospitality we should show. It's the kind of hospitality the Father shows here. A hospitality that includes forgiveness. A hospitality that includes the prodigal. A hospitality that goes the extra mile. A hospitality that turns the other cheek. We should be hospitable in our families. We should be hospitable. You know, that word hospitality literally means love for strangers. It means loving people who are strange to you. Loving people who are different from us in various kinds of ways. We should be having strangers into our homes. We should be having strangers into our churches. We should make the church a hospitable place. What we need to recognize in a lot of ways is, in terms of the broader culture, we are the strange ones. It's actually somebody normal walks in the door, and they seem strange to us because we've all lived in this Christian subcultural bubble for so long that we don't even recognize how weird we are anymore. And we think they're weird when really they're normal in terms of the, the, the majority population, the, the culture uh, all around us. So then let me put it this way. The stranger your church is, and you know, I haven't been here on a Sunday yet, but I can tell you, you're pretty strange. Uh, and my church back home is pretty strange. But the stranger you are, the more countercultural you are, the more your church stands out rather than fitting in, the greater the need for friendliness on the front end. So people who walk in and say, this is a really weird place, will be able to say, well, at least they're friendly. And they'll stick around long enough to find out why you're so strange, why you're so different. There's a lot of people who walk in and they see a bunch of strange people and strange things going on and walk right back out. The way to keep that from happening is with our friendliness, with our hospitality, with the kind of welcome and love that we show right on the front end. We've got to learn to be gracious. We've got to learn to be gracious to, to people who differ from us. Christians who differ from us, we've got to learn to be gracious uh, and kind to non-Christians uh, who God might bring uh, across our path. We've got to learn how to articulate and defend our theological, and yes, I will say political convictions in a winsome way, uh, in a way that makes the truth we believe beautiful. Again, civility is so lacking in our culture. It's so lacking in our churches. Civility is, is a lost virtue. 
Our churches should be equipped to minister to people whose family situation is irregular. Okay? We know what the norm is. Okay? You know, um, we, you know, people talk about heteronormative, and they use this language of what's normal and all that kind of stuff. But we know what the normal family is, what the creational norm for the family is. It's a man and a woman joined together in the covenant of marriage, and then the children that God grants to them. We know what the normal family is, so to speak. But in a fallen world, people find themselves in all kinds of situations that are departures from the norm. Uh, you know, in our types of churches, you know, we say, oh, the family's under attack and marriage is under, under attack. So what do we do? We fight back and we emphasize the importance of family and the importance of marriage. And that's wonderful. We have to do those things. We're unfaithful if we don't. But we can inadvertently end up marginalizing and demeaning single people, people whose, whose uh, life situation doesn't match up to that. And that can become a form of older brotherishness because we act as though, well, this is the norm, and if you don't fit in, then, well, you're going to have a hard time uh, fitting in anywhere. If you've got singles, if God brings singles across your path or in your church, the church family is family for the single person. We should be equipped to help single parents. We should be equipped to help people who are divorced. We should be equipped to help people who have lost their jobs or maybe never even had a job and don't have the skills to get a job. We should be ready to minister to that family that comes in, and they may look like a normal family right at first, but the kids are a mess, and the parents are clueless about parenting, and the kids can't sit still and quiet the way that your kids have done so wonderfully this weekend. What do you do with that? Again, if your church is only for the people who've got well-behaved kids, you're not going to be able to reach very many people. It's something we've got to think about. Mercy ministry is a great way to get over our older brotherishness. Now, there are different seasons of life. We're not all called to go work in a soup kitchen or, uh, or, or to go do really intense and, and uh, really time-intensive forms of mercy ministry um, all the time. Um, it may be that if you're a, a wife and a mom with little kids, your mercy ministry, you know, if you're a mom with little kids, you're clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and caring for the sick all day long. You're doing plenty of mercy ministry as it is. But there need to be people in our churches who uh, have got the, the, the marginal time and money to go help the poor. The poor are often poor because of their own foolishness. That's a reality in our society, and, and, and we have to acknowledge that. Um, sometimes they're poor through no fault of their own, but very often they're poor because of their own foolishness, their own bad decisions. We need to help them anyway, and we need to do so wisely. You know, there's that great book, When Helping Hurts, uh, that, that uh, I think has a lot of really useful lessons in this area. But we, what we can't do is look at somebody who's in, in an impoverished situation and say, well, you know, it's, I mean, it's America. We, you know, anybody here can get a job and work and make a living. If you're poor, it's your own fault. We can't do that kind of thing. It may be their own fault. That is very true. That does not excuse us from showing them kindness and grace. See, that's an older brother kind of response. Okay? You may have somebody out there who's illiterate, let's say, okay? and you're illiterate. But you know what? You most likely were not self-taught. You had somebody teach you. That literacy you possess was a gift bequeathed to you by someone else. You may look at somebody and say, well, you know, you've got a lousy work ethic. That's why you can't keep a job. Well, you know what? You weren't born with a good work ethic. You had parents and uh, maybe teachers and coaches who instilled in you that work ethic. That work ethic is a gift. Don't think of it as your accomplishment. If other people didn't receive it, that's not an excuse to not help them. 
I'll just say this, and, and again, this, I say this as one who I wish my church could do better in this kind of thing, but there are times where we've done it and I've seen the change it can bring. Not just going out there to help the poor, but bringing the poor in here and integrating them into your community can have a wonderfully transformative effect on a church and a church's culture. We should uh, never give the impression that our churches are only for those who have their act together. We should be patient with people who are struggling. We live in a society that is awash with people who have all kinds of what are often labeled mental illnesses, people who struggle with depression or with uh, high social anxiety. Uh, and again, these things, we, we could talk about what kind of mixture of, of sin is in there versus a true medical condition. We can have that conversation. But we need to be a people who can show mercy to those who are struggling. We've got to be patient with those who are less mature than we are. We've got to be ready to mourn with those who are mourning. We've got to be kind to those who are suffering. We've got to be ready to help the struggling. We need to uh, help those around us who are going through hard times for whatever reason. The world is full of hurting people. There's a saying, I've heard it attributed to a number of different church fathers or, uh, or other ancient writers, be kind to everyone you meet for everyone is involved in a long struggle. Or be kind to everyone you meet for everyone's life is hard. You may look around, if you only know people in a surface level way, and you know, especially you've got a church full of successful people, uh, you may think, oh, well, their life looks like it's been pretty easy. But whenever you get to know people, you find out there have been real struggles to get to where they are, and probably real struggles still going on. The world is full of hurting people. The world is full of struggling people. The world is full of lonely people needy people. The fields are ready to be harvested. The prodigals are out there. They just need to be sought out. We need to welcome them into the Father's home, and that can be hard. All these things I'm talking about are hard. It requires sacrifice. It requires humility, but this is what we are called to do. Um, again, we, you know, we, we talk about our dream church. And again, when we think about our dream church, we think about a church that is problem-free. A bunch of people who think like me, who agree with me, who maybe even look like me. We think of a church that is free of problem people. Wouldn't that be your church, your dream church, Dwayne? A church that is free of problem people? As a pastor, that's really what you fantasize about. You know, a church where just everybody gets along and everybody loves the pastor and they, can't, they just tell you how great your sermon was every Sunday and, and they always take your advice and your counsel and do exactly what you ask them to do. A problem-free church, that would be our dream church. But let me tell you, a problem-free church is really not a church. In fact, I would say a problem-free church is a problem church. Because a church that is doing its job is going to be a church that is full of recovering prodigals. And as such, it's going to have all kinds of problems. Jesus has given us a mission to be like the Father, to welcome the prodigals in. He's given us a mission to seek and save the lost. Let's go do it. Right? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for being a kind and good God, for being a loving God. Again, we thank you. We thank you for your uh, forgiveness. The, the, the wonders of your grace are so manifest in our lives. You forgive our unrighteousness. You forgive our self-righteousness. Uh, Father, you're good to us always. Help us to show this goodness to others. Help us to show this grace and mercy to others. Help us to go put these things into practice in our families and in the place of our work and our uh, school situations. 
uh, in our church life, uh, in our community involvement, in everything we do. Uh, may we manifest the love and the holiness, uh, the wisdom and the righteousness of the Father uh, that is of you. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.